This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Brought to you by JohnnyT-Shirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. You're listening to the Inside Carolina Podcast, sponsored by JohnnyT-Shirt.com. I've got Greg Barnes with me, and we've got a special guest we'll get to in just a minute. But Greg, Carolina and Wofford this weekend in Carmichael Auditorium, I guess Carmichael Arena now, always Carmichael Auditorium when I was growing up and when folks that played there were, were actually playing in the building. But Greg, tell us why Carolina and Wofford in Carmichael this weekend, I think it's something that should happen at least once every year, somehow, some way. Um, but at least this year, this weekend, Caroline and Wofford are there. Yeah, and I would like to be able to say that this was some grand plan by UNC. Uh, I, I think that would have been fantastic. I, I think they should do that, uh, if not on a annual basis, every other year. Uh, but, but really, the reason this game is, is taking place where it is is because of scheduling. Uh, you've got graduation this weekend, which of course is at the Smith Center to be in December. I graduated and walked uh, at, at the Smith Center a long time ago. Uh, not as long as, as maybe you did, Tommy. But uh, <laughs> on, it was man. it was chilly that it was it was chilly that day. Uh, but North Carolina, of course, as everybody knows, has a uh, long road trip next week. They, they play at Gonzaga on Wednesday, the 18th, before heading to. Uh, Vegas for that CBS Sports Classic against UCLA. And they're actually departing on Monday. And so when they were trying to schedule this game, uh, you know, it, it was really a thing. Well, they would like to have it on Monday. But if they have the game on Monday, then North Carolina can't leave for Gonzaga until Tuesday. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that's a long trip out there uh, to the state of Washington. So they decided, you know what, we're going to do it during the weekend. We're going to take advantage of Carmichael. And uh, I think it's I think it's a great thing. The last time North Carolina has played in in that facility uh, was back in the 2009-2010 season. It's when uh, North Carolina got the invite for the NIT, uh, and uh, they played William and Mary, Tony Shaver's team, and it was just a, a fantastic game to cover. Uh, it was really kind of you know reminiscing back to the to the glory days. And um, yeah, I, from that point, I'd always kind of hoped that we would be able to cover more games you know, the men's team there, but uh, that has not been the case. But we get that opportunity again this weekend, and uh, that's going to be fun for everybody involved. Indeed, and if you ever had, have seen a game in Carmichael, it's different. Um, you know, I went to a couple long, long time ago, and my brothers and my father saw uh, Walter Davis's shot in 74 there. They, they saw numerous games, uh, my middle brother as a, at the time, a boyfriend of a student at Carolina. She had tickets. He got to see Carolina and Carmichael all the time. Our special guest today is going to be somebody that actually played in Carmichael, and that's Michael Norwood. Norwood, 
uh, on varsity team, 85, 86, 86, 87. So, Michael, appreciate you taking the time and joining the show. I, I hope you brought some good stories to share with us because I know our listeners will be up for them. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And, and you, you, you nailed it right at the start. It's always Carmichael Auditorium to me. Absolutely. It's a, I saw the change, and I still can't get with it. No disrespect to the folks that changed the name. It, like you said, Carmichael Auditorium. Michael, let's get into it a little bit. I remember when you were there. Greg alluded to how old I am just a second <laughs> ago. Uh, but I remember there, I specifically remember – your senior night in the Smith Center, as I mentioned to you uh, off right. the air. But just uh, give us your first memory of walking in Carmichael Auditorium, having the opportunity to get up shots and, and play basketball in Car- Carmichael Auditorium when you were back there in, at Carolina. Not too terribly long ago to me, but maybe a long time ago to some. A long time ago to me. Um, you know, the first time I'd ever walked into Carmichael was the first day of JV tryouts. And there was, I think, 60-some guys trying out. And Coach Williams was our head coach. He was 32 years old. And I was probably one of the last guys to make the team. And so my first two years there, freshman and sophomore year, were seeing it from the JV's eyes. And it was it was just it's such a gem i just love every part about carmichael and you know one of the vivid memories from the jv is one time coach williams got so mad at somebody i forgot who it was he punted a ball that about hit the about hit the roof it went straight up into the stands he was so mad at us about something and he took he took jv as serious as i'm sure he takes varsity i'll never forget you know, afterwards we'd meet in the hallway. We didn't use the same locker room. We'd use the hall, the hallway, the locker room that's kind of underneath Woolen. And we'd play, you know, really good teams. And after the game, if we lost, he would break down. I probably, he probably don't want to hear this, but he would break down and start to lose it a little bit and apologize to us for not having us more prepared. And we're sitting here playing Chris Washburn and Nate McMillan and Danny Manning and Blue Edwards, and he's apologizing to us that that you know he didn't have us prepared. We all knew then, you know, we're like this guy's a really good coach, and people will you know run through a wall for him. But those were you know kind of the JV when I first started, and then what happens, and they still do it to this day. When when you're on the JV team, you can see them in the Smith Center. You sit in the front row behind the bench. And at Carmichael, like you were saying, Tommy, you've been there. They packed people in that place. I mean, I'm sure the fire marshal would not have been happy because that student section was all bleachers. And so we were the front row behind the the team, and it was just jammed, packed in there. And and those bleachers, uh, it was this whole big aluminum structure. And when things got rolling – the students would jump up and down on those aluminum bleachers, and it was the loudest place I've ever been to. It, not even, not even, it's a low roof, low ceiling, aluminum bleachers. The students right behind their bench and our bench, and there was nothing better. I don't want to get off topic too much here, but the, the fact that you played for Roy when he was a JV coach uh, is fascinating <laughs> to me. And, and, and talking with Roy over the years, something that he said multiple times 
is that when he, he took the job at Kansas, one thing that Dean Smith told him was that his concern for Roy was that he took losses too hard and that it, uh, it, it meant maybe a little too much to him. And I talking with, always, he would, he would start to lose it on a JV game. He would, he would lose it. We were, we were kind of shocked. And again, he was 32 years old at the time. Various players over the years. It's funny how this transpires, but uh, with each aging class, senior class that moves through, they say, well, you, he, he was pretty hard, but he's, he's, he's not as hard on the new guys as he was on us. <laughs> and it seems like that you know, with each passing class that kind of comes out. How was he as a coach? I mean, when he's 32 years old, I can only imagine the fire within that man. How was he in oh, he terms was, of working with you guys? He was so intense, and, and he took it very seriously. And my second-year JV team, it was Chadwick and Jenkins and Billy Smith and Rod Rose and, and Wallerman and Joe Quigg, son of Dr. Quigg, and we we had Marty Holt. We had the greatest group of guys. That was probably the funnest team I ever played on. And he just he, – he was so good at just teaching. He loved to teach us. And it, it was just – we all did it. We said back at that time that he was a great coach and that he was going to be successful. We knew it. We talked about it back then. Um his intensity, his attention for detail, his his coaching abilities. We we were just blown away by him at that time. We knew we knew he was gonna be destined for greatness. Boy, this is gonna be a fun show. Let me uh let me talk about Johnny T shirt right fast. Johnny T shirt dot com and Johnny T shirt on Franklin Street, sponsors of this podcast and very good sponsors of this podcast. They outfit every Carolina fan with anything you could possibly want. Carolina gear, Carolina stuff for your home, your walls, your car, sweatshirts, t-shirts, jerseys, anything you could possibly need, especially here at the holiday time. They've got some great sales going on on in-store and online. And look, if you need 10% extra off, even on top of all the extra sales, if you're an Inside Carolina Premium subscriber, you get 10% off your order. You'll always get that great customer service, both in-store and online. If you need something, call them. they answer your questions. You got a size check. You need to make sure something fits. I'm sure they'll be able to help you with that. It's a big deal to shop at johnnytshirt.com and Johnny T-Shirt on Franklin Street here at the holidays. And it's a big deal because when you do, you support the Inside Carolina podcast. You know, what's interesting, thinking about um, Carolina's JV program, and to this day, uh, if there are more than a handful others, especially major college, I'm not aware of them. I, I don't know have the exact numbers. But not only is that program designed to um, build young men that maybe couldn't make varsity or be on varsity at the time, of course, um, like you did, you can progress up. If you work very hard and you are very lucky, and a lot of folks have done it over the years, but it also, Michael, built coaches. Uh, I mean, it was the way Dean Smith used to get his assistant coaches seasoned. And there yeah. are other examples, but I, I don't think there's any better example of that than Coach Williams. No, and, and like Jimmy Black was our assistant one year because he was wanting to get into coaching. And then there were some other guys that passed through like that. And it's, it's just you, you learn from the best. And, and um, you know, you're right. I mean, even the managers, 
that were on the JV that ended up being on varsity. Some of them got into co- a lot of them got into coaching and or you know it, you know athletic departments things like that. So it was just it was a, a phenomenal learning experience. It was I, I loved my JV years at Carmichael. Um, I got lucky to to move up, but you know I just got to start to be around these unbelievable players. And and the one thing about Carmichael I always remember was just the summer pickup games at Carmichael and when I was on the J V, you know, it was hard to get in the pickup game. So I would hang out there all day for the last couple of games just to get a little bit of run. And a lot of the Duke guys would come over, you know, Johnny Dawkins and Tommy Amaker and David Henderson, some of the state guys would come over and there'd be other people in town. And what was funny about the pickup games is is when you're on the varsity, you're on the team, you automatically got to play next. So there'd be times where I got to play and Johnny Dawkins had to sit. And that just kind of, you know, it was funny that we had, we had rights and priority over those guys because we were, we were on the team. And then some of the guys that we were playing pickup, because Phil Ford was still playing pickup back then. Dudley Bradley was still come play. Jeff Crompton was there probably every day, and then he'd immediately go to he's not here and post up at the end of the bar like he did all the time. But it was so much fun. I loved that during the summer, playing the pickup games and stuff. And, and, and again, my time was from 83 to 87. So the, the biggest was always when Mike and uh, James uh, Worthy were playing pickup. And you always had to separate those two because they were just so much better than everybody because they had to guard each other and, and they would just run their mouths the entire time to each other going at it like you wouldn't believe. Michael, I'm a little biased. Uh, I grew up in Gastonia, went to Greer Junior High, which is where James yeah. Worthy went. Sure. We actually uh, wore the same uniforms that his team wore. They had recycled right. them. And so we had <laughs> to wear them however many years later, which we always enjoyed that, that aspect of it. Uh, but when you talk about Worthy and Jordan in those, in those settings, we've heard since, and we all saw it back in the 90s, you, uh, as Larry Johnson said, Michael didn't talk trash, he talked the truth. How, how was it with <laughs> Worthy, did. though? Because Worthy, I know Worthy, he liked to chat a little bit, too. How was that in terms of their competition and competitiveness together? Uh, it, it, it was it was the seventh game of the NBA Finals. Those guys went at you, – you didn't ju- – this wasn't jogging up and down, you know, top of the key, top of the key taking jumpers. These guys were going at it. I remember one time, you know, Mike is just chirping at him. He's like, you know, how many did I drop on you last time I was at L.A.? You know, what I score against you guys? And, and James was like, would you like to come over and look at my rings? Because this is before Mike had any. And so Stick was like, why don't you come over and look at my rings? I mean, they were just going back and forth at each other. And, and I've said it all along. If if James would have ended up, you know, somewhere else where it wasn't so balanced, that guy would have led the NBA in scoring. I've never seen somebody with a quicker first step than Stick. I mean, he, he was just amazing. And those two guarding each other, at ages, I don't know what it would have been back there, 24 and 26, and at the peak of their athletic prowess. It was just – it was one of the most lasting memories is just playing those pickup games at Carmichael. I know you've been to the 
the new uh, locker room set up at the Smith Center, and it is <laughs> it's swanked out. It's very nice. They have a little auditorium, basically, where they can go in and do film review. They have uh, all kinds of uh, baths that they can use for with the trainers. They, they've got couches, and I think they have a pool oh. table in there now. Uh, and then, of course, the media section is on the other side of the building. We have our own little space. That wasn't the case at Carmichael, was it? Oh, my gosh, no. So <laughs> Carmichael's, it was a square. The locker room was a square, and it's probably, you know, it wasn't 20 by 20 or 15 by 50. It was tiny. And so you, you got dressed there, and then after games, to get to the shower, the way the locker room was the last room, but you had to walk through the media room to get to the showers. And so you had to cut through the media room, and it wasn't just media. Everybody had friends in there, this and that. So the towels back then were like the size of hand towels probably. So you've got to cut through the media room with just a towel on. You know, there's guys, girls walking around, everything to get to the shower. And, and then, you know, it's one big shower like it always was back then. And then, again, you, you know, you got to make your way back through the media room in front of everybody with your little tiny towel going. It, the first time you do it, the first couple of times, you're kind of very self-conscious of it. But the, the best part, the, my, my, probably my favorite part about the locker rooms in Carmichael is, so I don't know how they'll have it set up for the game, but the band was directly above the locker room. So the locker room's in the corner, the band's up in that right corner, and there was no music back then. It was only the band playing. And so while you were getting dressed, you know, Coach Smith was talking or whoever, and the band's playing. And then we'd go out into that tunnel, and you can you could kind of see. I know anybody in the stands could look and see when we were in the tunnel. And you get together in your group, and one of the seniors would be talking, and the band's playing the same entrance music now, where it kind of builds, and, and just that never got old. It, that just it gives me goosebumps remembering that that feeling that that of being in the locker room before the game and and just just getting in that huddle and then coming out to just an overflow crowd because they were all on top of the benches they were on top of the floor the crowd was all there and and that was that was like probably my favorite lasting memory of Carmichael was just that that feeling before every game and, and like you said I mean we we were supposed to play UCLA um, in the Smith Center. I'll tell you one quick story about UCLA. So we ended up playing them at Carmichael, and that was my first game ever. And Coach, and I'm not going to imitate his voice, but so Coach Smith walks, because I got in that game because we beat him by 31, I think. But uh, Coach Smith walks by me the next day of practice and goes, I guess you never thought that you'd be playing against UCLA on national TV, did you? And I'm like, no, sir. I never – you know, that's when your dreams exceed, your reality exceeded my dreams because I never once considered it. But that was his comment to me after the next day of practice. Let me uh, tell you that UCLA or the Carolina Carmichael story I had from that weekend. Okay, so we, we would go to every Carolina home football game and we parked at the 54 lot there. So when we walked down 54, we'd walk. Um, across the, the intramural fields there, and we'd go in Carmichael. It was always open, cause, so we'd yep. go in there, and my parents wanted us to go in there and 
use the bathroom, do whatever. <laughs> You'd always peek in and, and look at the court. And a couple of times I walked down to the court. I mean, just very cool vibe, especially for a young teenager at the time. Yeah. And, and so we're circling around. Um, you go in the main doors there off the intramural fields, you circle around to the left and, you know, we're just whatever kids do and parents do as they're walking to the game, go to the bathroom and we come up and we round the corner there at the back corner and there stands a tall guy with crutches and Dean Smith. And it took right. me a second to realize what I was seeing. I was 14 at the time. It was November of 85 and right. D- Dean Smith is standing there talking to Michael Jordan and Jordan's on right. crutches because he had broken his foot that year for the yep. bulls. And he, yep. they were standing there talking and nobody else was around. It was just me yeah. and my brothers and my parents. And I will never forget that I've got the, I'm sitting um, up in my man cave, I've got the parking pass sign because that's all we had to autograph. So Coach sure. Smith said, come into my office. I got to give you a pen. You got to get Michael's autograph. He signs his. I go out there and I get Michael's autograph. And at the time, you know, they finished up their conversation and Jordan walks out and he's driving. I don't know what kind of Mercedes it is, but it's the <laughs> small skinny ones with the with a drop top and it's got like airtime on it. I remember that car. Yeah. It had like UNC 23 was the license plate. I remember that. Exactly. And and so that was that. I don't know if that happens if the Smith center opened on time. (laughs) Exactly. You're probably right. And (laughs) and you know, what stinks for you is is it was before the era of camera phones because now you'd have that picture with the most. Oh, absolutely. And my brother had his, you know, old Nikon or whatever you had back then. He said, no, I don't want to carry it because I don't want to have to carry it. So we've got the only thing I've got is a 1985. And if anybody listening to this show doubts it, I'll show you a picture of it (laughs) um, of a parking pass signed by Dean Smith, Michael Jordan, and my father from 1985. Very cool. Carmichael was just it is a it's an awesome place and and folks love the smith center and you had opportunity to play in both of them um and i want to talk a little bit about that compare and contrast uh being in carmichael in that environment you've already talked about a little bit the locker rooms and then talk about when you guys got to move over there to the Smith Center during the middle of that season, your junior season. Yeah, well, what, what was crazy was we only had one practice at the Smith Center. And, and, and we get there, and everybody's, like, jumping up and down, bouncing, because we could not believe how springy the floor was. Because Carmichael was concrete. It was so hard. And that was the first thing we noticed. So we only had one practice before the Duke game. And so we were kind of going in there blind, just like Duke was. We'd never played there. You know, the big difference is at Carmichael, it, it, it did feel like everything was more on top of you. And, and the Smith Center, things are spread back. And generally, when when you're out there, it kind of doesn't matter what, what where you're playing basketball. You, you kind of learn to just see the court anyway. You don't look up. You don't really – look up at the top of the Smith Center, look up Carmichael or Cameron or whatever. You just learn to focus on the court. So, you know, that, that was – that's kind of any place that you play, but just the, the loudness of, of Carmichael 
because again, I keep going back to those aluminum bleachers when things were rolling, everybody was jumping up and down. It just shook. It was so loud. I mean, the younger people aren't going to believe this, but but Duke was not our big game like my sophomore year or junior year, really. It was Georgia Tech. They had John Sally and Mark Price and Dwayne Farrell and Bruce Darrymple, and that was the bigger game was when we were playing those guys. And those were great games. And NC State, they were good back there. They had Chris Washburn, who I had played against the year before on the JV team. And most people probably don't know his name, but he may have been one of the five greatest players I ever saw play basketball. I mean, he unfortunately had some demons that he couldn't overcome, but he was Shaq with more skills. And he was, I mean, I think he went for like 26 and something against us at the Smith Center, the one, I mean, the at Carmichael, the one time, that one game, I don't remember exactly, but just some of the guys that came through, and I missed, I mean, they say the loudest, you said Walter, that was there, but also, you know, the Ralph Sampson game, that was before I got there, but they all say that was the loudest ever there. When, when, uh, the comeback and the steal by Mike and then the rebound, so I missed that one. Yeah, and I was going to ask about kind of the, the, the atmosphere there because Roy was actually talking about that particular game. And he said that yeah. uh, you, before the game, uh, while uh, you know, uh, Kearney Andrews was actually doing the introductions, that Roy is standing there like 10 feet away from, from Andrews, and he could not hear him. <laughs> and so he's looking down the sideline at Terry Holland and Craig Littlepage, and he's having to mouth uh, – emphatically the the names of the Virginia players so they knew yep. to come out. Uh is is it really was it really that loud at times in that in that building? It was just the configuration and a low ceiling, all the students just jam packed on the one side. So there's just this wall of sound right there. And that's where you you know the coaches would have been and and the players and I think I want to say that the lefty was the first one I ever saw to pull the, pull the chairs out onto the court to get away from the students because they were so loud and they, they couldn't hear. I, I could be wrong, but I was thinking he was one of the first ones to do that. And what we would do is coach always had the, the JV guys, everybody stand up so that, you know, nobody can look into the huddle or see over what he was doing, things like that. He, he didn't want anybody to see, but yeah, it was, it was the, the one big game that I was there was my freshman year, the, the last game for Matt and Sam and, and Mike was a junior that went to overtime where, where Matt hit the, the jumper at the free throw line to send it to overtime. So that was, while I was there, that was the biggest game. You know, the loudest I ever heard it was that comeback because we were down and Matt hit the shot and went to overtime and won. What great memories, man. You you observed a ton, and I was talking about this with Greg <laughs> off the air, but you observed a ton of North Carolina basketball history just in your four short years. And, of course, it goes way beyond that. If you've played basketball at Carolina, we all know what the Carolina family is, and it's very real. But, but Michael, just in that four short years, whether it was on the JV team, the first two, or the varsity, yeah. Um, do you ever go back and think um, of the history that you do? You sit sit there and say, "Wow, you know, I saw a lot. Oh, oh, I, I was part of a lot." Oh, 
all the time. And and I grew up, I, I did not grow up a Carolina fan. I grew up as really just a big basketball fan. So, you know, if it was State and Wake Forest playing on TV, I loved watching that game. And so I did appreciate, I mean, my first college game I ever went to see uh, my dad took me to the 1975 ACC Finals in Greensboro, and I saw freshman Phil Ford beat senior David Thompson. And that was the first college game I ever attended. And then a couple years later, I'm out there playing pickup with Phil. And, and he's just, again, I say it all the time, I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. And you were talking about bridging the gap, and then I played with the Joe Quigg, and, you know, Quiggles, his dad is Dr. Quigg, who made the free throws. And, you know, so there's and good friends with, you know, at Carolina, it was, you know, um, Tommy Kearns, whose dad played on the 57 team. So you get to know these people from way, way back when all the way through, you know, the current guys and stuff. So I, I, I enjoy it because I'm a fan of the sport and a fan of, and then getting to know the guys and they're, they're, you know, they're always awesome. And the one thing, and I, it may, it may sound funny or I don't know, I don't want it to sound wrong, but I, I know I was a walk-on. I've always known I was a walk-on. I was a walk-on, but nobody has ever treated me like anything more than a Carolina basketball player. So, you know, I play golf with Mike. I haven't in a while, but when last time I saw him, you know, Hey, let's play golf. Here's my cell number. Or Antoine Jamison, who I'd never played with, but I met and started talking to him. And, you know, you trade cell numbers. You know, let's play golf sometime. And, you know, I, again, I don't want that to sound funny, but I've always known I was a walk-on, but none of those guys ever treated me like I was anything but a Carolina player. And that goes with the managers, too. When, when there's a reunion or whatever, there's just as many hugs for the you know, the, the Adam Fleischmann's and the Mike Ellis's and Dean McCord's and, and Lonnie Parrish's, you know, all the, and, you know, all those managers too. It was all one big team. And I think all of that goes back to coach Smith about how he taught you how to treat people and how to, how to interact and how to be a good teammate and a good, you know, good leadership. And then coach Williams obviously learned from him and it's trickled down, but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very appreciative of of the things I've been able to be a part of and the things I've seen, and and I'm very very lucky. Michael, I explained earlier kind of how this game came to be, but once it was mm-hmm. scheduled and talking with a lot of people around the program, I think there was a lot of hope uh, that Roy Williams would be able to equal or exceed Dean Smith's win record. Uh, at Carmichael, because that would be just an incredible scene. Right. Hasn't yeah. played out that way. Roy needs two wins to to match Dean. Needs three to to yeah. beat him. Which, as we all know, that that's going to occur probably before the the new year. Uh, but that's you, know, Roy, to a man, and and every time we've talked to him about it, has always said that you know he, he's he's nothing compared to what Dean Smith was. So any any time we're able to talk to somebody that that played for for Coach Smith. Um, clearly he was a great coach. Clearly he brought a lot of things to the table that has advanced the game, a lot of unique things that are still present in the game. Uh, But from your perspective, what, how would you kind of summarize who Dean Smith was? Oh, wow. Um, 
you know, he was just he was just a, a, a better person than he was a coach. And, you know, he's one of the best coaches ever. And there's so many – there's just so many things that I, I took from him about, about, you know, having conversations with people and respecting people. And, and I send my kids – you know, they may not read them, but I send them a thought for the day. You know, I'll text them, you know, stuff. I, I love that from Coach Smith. And – now I work over at UNC. I work at the Honors College. I'm kind of a career coach, and I sit there, and, and everything I do, I, I kind of think about Coach Smith, about how to, to make, make you know, somebody feel better about themselves when they walk out of there and, and be more confident. And I think the one thing that, that Coach Smith, I, I think maybe his best thing about working with individuals is he always knew there were an individual – and he wanted that individual to be the best that an individual could be. So, you know, he wanted Michael Norwood to be the best Michael Norwood he could be. He's not wanting you to be Michael Jordan because there's different skill sets, different abilities. But he held Michael Jordan to the same standard of pushing him to be the best that he could be. And I think, you know, I, I took that from Coach Smith, and when I coach travel ball, my son or my daughter helping out with her stuff, or you know, doing things now with the kids is is just you know helping somebody try to be the best that they can be and maximize what their potential is. And you don't lump people into groups. You don't characterize people by their job or whatever. It's an individual, and and you see that person as an individual. And and I think that's maybe the thing I probably took from Coach Smith the most. And I would ask one, I would add one more thing. You're talking about Coach Williams, and I have no idea if he would say this or not. I have a feeling Coach Williams would not have liked to have tied or broken the record at Carmichael. And I'm just this is pure guessing. I agree with you how, for sure. Knowing how much he thinks of Coach Smith, I think that would have been his worst case scenario is to yep. break the record or tie it at Carmichael. And that's just me guessing. Yeah, I saw on uh, one of the, the early all-access things, Sean May talking about that. Sean May talking yeah. about how that's, that it's a big feat, and I'm paraphrasing Sean, but it's a big feat. But it's going to be tough for Coach Williams when that happens. Uh, oh, he's going to cry. Just, I mean, yeah, he just cried because at 32 the, when we lost to Laurenburg. He's going to cry that night. Because it's going to be bittersweet. He's going to miss his mentor, his friend, his, you know, his guiding light. It's going to. I think it's going to make him more melancholy. Again, I'm just guessing. I think it's going to make him more melancholy than it is going to be proud. He'll be. He'll be like Coach Smith when he broke the record in Winston Salem. You know, he went down the hallway and was like, there was. I don't forgot how many players were there. But he was like, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, it's all because of you. You know, Coach Williams, I think, is going to be very proud of his players for doing that. But overtaking Coach Smith is not something that I think. I'm, again, I'm just making a guess that, that it, it's, it's going to be tough for him, I have a feeling. Yeah, it's interesting. Greg, you know, we were in the press room down in the Bahamas and someone asked about, tying Rupp or going ahead of Rupp or whatever. And he said, you know, it just means I've coached a lot and had a lot of good players. And when yeah. he said that, I thought, you know, that if Dean Smith was sitting there and said the exact same thing, <laughs> um, it, it would not be surprising. So it's interesting how those guys have, 
they're they're different people but very very connected let me take our last short break we'll come back i got a couple more questions for you the baseball season is in full swing which means you need to listen to fantasy baseball today part of the cbs sports podcast network Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Let's talk a couple more questions about Carolina and Carmichael and and one game that like we said, if the Smith Center's ready on time, a lot of these games don't happen. That UCLA game, that was your first game. Um, yep. But also, they don't end um, against NC State and Valvano and Carmichael. Right. And, and a lot of people remember that game. I believe it was January 4th. I knew it was early January, and I'm cheating. I'm yep. looking at the uh, looking on the thing. But Carolina won by 11. Um, talk about that moment. You guys knew that was going to be the last game in there. Um, anybody that's a Carolina fan older than 35 and in the day of YouTube should know what happened with Valvano stealing the ball and getting that layup, the quote-unquote last shot in Carmichael. Yeah. Um, but just talk about that uh, and how that wrapped up the Carmichael era because it was indeed a special era in North Carolina history. You know – at the time, you didn't think much about it. I mean, you're 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, and, you know, Coach, the next game's Duke. And so you're focusing on Duke and the game. And, uh, you know, I don't remember being nostalgic or thinking about it. It was just we were moving gym. So I don't have a, a good in-depth answer because I didn't think anything about it. I didn't take a last look around, and back then – we didn't shake hands once the game was over. Coach Guthridge rushed to the locker room, and we all followed him. So we didn't even see Coach Valvano, you know, make the layup. Um, so it was just another game, and we're going to go play somewhere else next week. So there was no talk about it. No, it was just you're right in the middle of the season. You're playing State, who's really good, and then you're playing Duke, who's really good. And you know how Coach Smith is. You're focused. I mean, you, he's got a, a singular focus on what he wants to accomplish, and moving to the Smith Center was last on his list, I have a feeling. So um, nothing really nostalgic. Nobody talked about it. Nobody, hey, let's steal a chair or a locker or what, any of that stuff. Just, okay, next game's at Duke, and here's how you get to the – here's where you go park, and here's where the locker room is, and we'll see you there. Michael, you touched a little bit on that that Duke game, but how much exposure did you guys have to the Smith Center leading up to that game? And that's, I believe at the time, that was the third largest uh, on-campus arena. I think it held 21,000 even when it opened. So what was that transition like to the the Smith Center after that state game? Well, like I said, we only had one practice, and that was like the day before. And – 
So it was all new to us. And when the bleachers came out, I mean, we hadn't played a blue-white game. We hadn't played anybody. We are having to play Duke. It was like playing a, you know, it was a neutral court with everybody in Carolina blue. But you didn't – the sight lines were different. You, you, you just – it was so much bigger than anywhere we had played. I'm trying to think of some of the big places we played. I think we played in Dallas. One one year SMU, which was pretty big, but I mean, it was probably the biggest place we had played in up until that point. And you did when you came out for warmups, you definitely looked up and checked it out because then it was all pulled out. The one day of practice, all the bleachers are pushed back, all the seats are pushed back, so it's just one giant court with a whole bunch of goals on it. So that first practice or the first game against Duke, we were all just trying to figure it out and. The, you know, the one thing that, that was missing is they didn't have the white scoreboard there that was beside the bench with the little white uh, flip score thing because that was at Carmichael, if you remember. And, and the reason Coach Smith had that is because he had every game filmed and that angle picked it up on the camera so he would know what the time and score was for the entire video. So I don't know who has that scoreboard now, I'm sure some Carolina person has it. I heard, I don't know if it's a rumor or something, but I heard they were going to try to have it for the game. Maybe it's a message board phantom rumor. Somebody's be, got it, I've heard. Yeah, it would be pretty neat if they brought it back out there. Um, That'd be awesome. Let, we're talking about old arenas, and this is just me doing the trip down nostalgia <laughs> lane here. But sure. I, I was looking at the, the season there, 85-86 uh, season when you were on varsity and I'm looking at the places you guys played uh, Carmichael, of course, you played in Sullivan arena and I, and I can't remember which tournament that was early season, but you played down there we in went Jackson. To Alaska. We went to that, Alaska. And, uh, that may be that, that may be the uh, great Alaskan shootout then that's Sullivan yep. arena, I guess, but you've got, you know, the Charlotte Coliseum, uh, Madison square gardens on there old Winston-Salem Memorial Coliseum, Cole Fieldhouse. Yep. You played in University Hall, uh, Little John, Old Little John, the Greensboro Coliseum, Cameron Indoor. Just like I said earlier, and, I, and I'm not blowing smoke up your rear, and I just think it's fascinating <laughs> all the history that you got to experience in that, that season. Just talk about that. I mean, like well, you said, there was you, no you, nostalgia you, leaving Carmichael, but when you think back, you're like, man, it's pretty cool. I played basketball in all these places. Yeah, I mean, the the two that I remember is is we played at Madison Square Garden. It may have been my senior year that we we probably played there more than once, but I got to play in that game. And we played Rutgers, and there was a, a kid on there that grew up in my hometown of Henderson, Bailey Austin. And so, you know, we're out there during warm-ups talking, going, can you believe – you know, two Henderson boys are playing at Madison Square Garden tonight. So I do remember, I do remember playing there. And the one, you know, a couple of those old places like Reynolds, Reynolds was a good place. I mean, they made a mistake leaving there because that, they call it, it was an old barn and that place was loud and the steps, you, you kind of got dressed underneath down low and you went up these steep steps to get out there. That was kind of a low overhang. I remember that at Reynolds, and and, and you know it was such a cool place to play. And you know Coalfield House, they were crazy back then. I mean they, they were they had Lynn Bias back then, you know, Tony Massenburg, Keith Gatlin. Um, 
we used to, we never played Wake Forest at Wake Forest. We always played them at Greensboro Coliseum because Wake wanted to sell more tickets, and so we play at Greensboro. Um, and yeah, we played the old the old Charlotte Coliseum. That's long gone, but yeah, they, we we were lucky to go to some fun fun places. Now yeah, you, the opposite end is we played in Florida, I think one time, and it was like in a convention center. I think it was it was my junior year. We were down there, and it was the same weekend as, like, I think Penn State versus Oklahoma National Championship football game at the Orange Bowl Classic. Or Orange Bowl, we were playing something, but we were playing, like, in a, a civic center, and it didn't hold 4,000 people. So that, that's the opposite end of the spectrum there. Yeah, that, that's funny. Uh just looking at those old places, cool places to play. You mentioned Reynolds, and I 100% agree um, with you there. Reynolds Coliseum, and folks don't want to hear it, but that place was awesome to see a basketball game, especially it was, Carolina. It was a home court advantage there for State. It was, and people think uh, State fans are crazy these days. You got no clue how oh, State fans so were back I, in those days. And so the State people won't listen to this. So when – we went to play there. My sister li- lives in Raleigh, and she had two young boys. They were really young. And so you could get tickets, and I asked Coach, you know, I wanted like four tickets or six tickets, I don't remember. But he was like, well, who's, you know, who?" he always asked, who are the tickets for? I was like, well, my nephews are like four or five. He's like, you don't want them to go to the game. <laughs> and And he goes, the language, and they throw pennies at you. And he goes, you really don't want the little kids sitting at the at the family section. I re- I remember he warned me about that. Yeah, JB Sissel and I covered that last game of Carolina and State in Reynolds, and I thought Ed Coda and Ronald Curry were going to incite <laughs> a riot that night. It, it, but but again, a fabulous play place to see a game. And, and Reynolds was an angry crowd. Uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium is is loud and they're right on top of you, but it, you never feel any sort of, and I don't know if threatens the right word, um, but. Well, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. I mean, the Duke, and, and the Duke guys, they get credit now. They were a lot funnier back then. They they didn't, you know, they weren't passing out cheat sheets for cheers. I remember my junior year, we played in the last game of the year, and, and Steve Hale was out because he had a collapsed lung. So he walks out, and there, one side of the place is going inhale. The other place is doing exhale. So they're going inhale, exhale. <laughs> and then the next thing they started chanting in him was high school haircut because he had this long hair parted right down the middle. So they're chanting high school haircut at him. They were so much funnier back then. <laughs> and I'll tell you the one yep. story. I know y'all had Jeff Denny. I don't know if he told the story. This was not the. This was later on. I was gone, but Jeff was checking in there, and they start chanting, "Oh no, not Denny!" Yeah. And he said he's at the scoreboard, and they're chanting, "Oh no, not Denny!" There's a there's a lot of uh, they were fun back then. They were fun back then. There's a lot of X-rated ones that I've heard that uh, that probably would not fare very well in the in the social media world these days. Nope. Well, Michael, this this has been a blast. Uh, I feel like we could talk to you all night long about some of these great stories. But before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, is there one particular memory from Carmichael 
that stands out to you that, that kind of resonates with what that place is about? You know, I just, I just go back to being in the tunnel because when you're there, there's 14 of you and, and there's nothing like being on a team and being in a locker room and being one and, and there's nobody else there. There, there there's, there's 14 of you in the huddle and the band's playing and there's whatever it was, 10,600 back then or whatever, but you were in this little cocoon and, and you were getting ready to go play somebody and you know, that, that's your brother beside you and you're, you're, you know, you're getting ready to go out of the tunnel and it's just so cool and the sounds and the sights and that, that was stuff I probably remember the most is just that, that little moment before every game, how exciting it was. And Coach Smith used to talk about that all the time, about how you know, we don't get to play many of these games. You know, your career is over really pretty quickly. And, and you want to relish every single game. Every game's different. Every game, there's something about it. And you really kind of want to take it in and enjoy it. And, you know, looking back, that's, to me, that was like just my favorite thing about Carmichael. I mean, I, I love the pickup. I love the JV. My JV teammates, they were awesome. And I love the playing, but probably the, the that off-the-court stuff what was my most endearing memory of Carmichael, just being in that tunnel. Fantastic stuff, man. I do appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. I know, um, uh, you know a lot of people want to talk and hear about the next greatest and this year's team and next year's team and beyond. But to be honest, I'm getting older and it, it is cool to go back and hear stories from the past, especially a past like you experienced at North Carolina. I, I just want to make sure you understand how much we appreciate you coming on. Well, I, again, I, you know, I, I appreciate you having me on when I, I had fun last year, kind of writing my little observations and I miss doing it. And, You can tell I'll talk basketball all day long with anybody about any subject. I'm I'm a fan. I I enjoy all parts of it. Good deal. Well, I appreciate you joining us. And, Greg, I certainly appreciate you always joining me on this, the Inside Carolina podcast, sponsored by JohnnyTShirt.com. Thanks, gentlemen. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks, Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by johnnytshirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.